Welcome to the Heartland Free Church Sermon Podcast. We are so happy to have you joining us today. If you are a first-time listener or first-time visitor here at the church, we would love to get connected with you. You can click that link in the podcast summary. That is our online connection card. If you'd just like to learn more about us as a church, you can visit heartlandfree.com or you can download the Heartland app in whatever app store you prefer. Thank you again for joining us. We've got a fantastic message for you this morning, and we will be getting into that right now. Keith Green hit the evangelical world with the force of an atomic bomb. I didn't know this, but Keith was born a Jew, raised in the Christian science religion. By the time he hit his teen years, he was thoroughly confused. He started smoking pot, using psychedelic drugs, all in the hope of finding the truth. And then he met a fellow seeker, Melody Steiner, and together they found Jesus. And Keith renounced Christian science. He became a Jewish believer in Jesus as his Messiah. He was only 21 years old. And he spent the next seven years like a human tornado living for Jesus with total abandon. Both Sue and I were greatly impacted by Keith and his music. In fact, I had the joy of baptizing Sue when I was doing my pastoral internship, and for her testimony, Sue quoted the opening lines of Keith's song, No Compromise. Make my life a prayer to you. I want to do what you want us to No empty words, no white lies, no token prayers, no compromise. The second verse goes like this. I want to die and let you give your life to me so that I might live and share the hope you gave to me, the love that set me free. Ironically, Keith got his wish a little earlier than expected. On July 28, 1982, Keith and his three-year-old Josiah, his two-year-old Bethany, boarded a twin-engine plane along with nine others, and that plane, heavily overloaded, went down less than a mile from takeoff. Everyone died. Keith's wife, Melody, had stayed back to care for their one-year-old, Rebecca. She was six weeks pregnant with their fourth child, Rachel who was born in March of 1983. The amazing voice of Keith Green was silenced. Virtually every song he did holds memories for Sue and I, but none more than his song, The Sheep and the Goats. As I was working on this sermon, I had to listen a couple times. Yes, you can go on YouTube, listen to it. It's just awesome. It's powerful. Just like, just Keith and his piano, he basically sings the words of Jesus from Matthew 25. And then he concludes with this word. He says, the only difference between the sheep and the goats was what they did and didn't do. Keith's ministry is called Last Days Ministries. And if ever there was a person who lived out the words of Jesus here in Matthew 25, it was Keith Green. After Keith and Melody found Jesus, their home became a Christian commune. It was known as the Greenhouse, a place 
where people grow. Soon they were purchasing five neighboring homes. Before long, there were 75 people living with them, including drug addicts and prostitutes, bikers, homeless people, lots of single pregnant girls needing shelter. And on top of that, Keith refused to charge money for his concerts and albums. His entire life was pedal to the metal 24-7. And then at the age of 28, God took him home. But his legacy lives on, especially the way he embodied the teaching of the sheep and the goats. Today we conclude the teaching of our Lord on the end times with this amazing passage of scripture where Jesus gives us five powerful lessons about the king, the separation, the sheep, the goats, and the conclusion. The first lesson is about the king. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. The most common title that Jesus uses of himself is the title Son of Man. Now, I'm a big fan of the Chosen TV series. They just finished uh, season two, and it's just fantastic. I, I love it when Jesus speaks about the Son of Man, and then uh, he says to his disciples, uh, guys, that's me. <laughs> the Son of Man title highlights the fact that Jesus is one of us. He's human. He's a man, just like us. It's a title that affirms the incarnation, that the creator of the universe took on human flesh, became one of us. It expresses his condescension and his humility. It says volumes about his meekness and his gracious love for sinners. It was also a less offensive title than calling himself Son of God, which would immediately have aroused needless hostility from the Jewish religious leaders. It allowed him to sort of fly under the radar, so to speak, until his time would come. Final reason Jesus used the title Son of Man was because it was less tempting for his followers. They had enough grandiose dreams as it was. John and, John and James, they were already starting to measure the drapes <laughs> for the new kingdom. They said, hey, Jesus, we want to be on your right and left. You know, We want to be the top guys in the new kingdom. You see, up until this point, Jesus had never, ever referred to himself as a king. Even Pilate, two days later, remember, this Jesus said these words two days before he was crucified. And even Pilate, two days later, directly asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, it is as you say. And yet here in this teaching, for the first time, Jesus does call himself a king, both verse 34 and verse 40. But it is interesting that he did this in a teaching that was private, with only a few of his disciples present. You see, Jesus is indeed king of kings and lord of lords. He rules and he reigns 
over the universe. At the end of the age, he will gather before him all of the people groups, and he will judge them. And because Jesus is omniscient, because he knows everything, because he's omnipresent, because he's everywhere present at the same time, and because he's omnipotent, because he has all power. For those three reasons, he will be able to judge with perfection and precision, and no one will be able to say, hey, that's not fair. (laughs) He'll immediately show you in your mind, oh, this is, okay, oh, yes, okay, That's why you judge the way you did. Make no mistake about it. The lowly and humble and gracious Jesus is also the undisputed king of the universe. This brings us to the second lesson, which is the separation. In verse 32, Jesus says, All of the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. A few weeks ago, I spoke at my mom's funeral. And um, one of the things I said about her is that she saw the world in terms of black and white. There was good and evil to mom, darkness and light. Hey, there were the, uh, the good guys, and there were the bad guys. <laughs> and there wasn't a lot of room in between. And uh, that's the home that I was raised in. Wasn't a lot of gray. And I have absorbed that worldview, much of it myself, which has led me on many occasions to ask the Lord, is this really accurate? Is this the way that I should see the world? You know, just in, in these stark terms, two camps, sheep and goats. Is that the way I should see the world? And uh, as I was thinking about that, reflecting on that, Jesus reminded me that he taught that every single person is indeed in one of two camps. In fact, in Matthew 7, the last half of Matthew 7, he teaches this seven consecutive times that there are two camps. First, Jesus says there's two gates. There's a narrow one, there's a wide one. Then he says there's two roads. Broad one leads to destruction, narrow one leads to life. Jesus said there are two types of prophets. There's the false ones and the true ones. Then Jesus said, These are just one bang, 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 one after the other. Then he says there's two types of trees. There's the good trees, there's the bad trees. Then Jesus said, and there's two types of builders. There's the wise builders, there's the foolish builders. He said, and there's two types of foundation. (laughs) There's the foundation on rock, and there's the foundation on sand. So clearly, our creator and maker, he knows who is his, and he knows who isn't. He could walk right up and down the aisles here. He could say sheep, 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 goat, sheep, sheep, goat, okay? You know what? We can't do that. Very important for us to understand that. See, there's a caution here because we are not privy to the same information that he has. Jesus emphasized this 
when he taught the parable of the wheat and the tares. Jesus uses a word for tares, zizanion, that refers to darnell wheat, fake wheat. <laughs> but the problem is, looks just like real wheat. Very, very hard to tell the difference. And in the parable, the wheat and the tares, the, the servants ask their master if they should pull up the darnell wheat, the, the false wheat. And the master says, no, 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 don't do that because when you start pulling up the false wheat, you're going to root up some of the real wheat at the same time. So let both of them grow until the harvest. And then at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the tares, tie them in a bundle to be burned, and then gather up the real wheat and bring it into the barn. Folks, we got to be very, very careful here. You know, if you're like mom and me, and some of you are wired that way, you can easily get out over your skis. <laughs> and uh, you can go a step too far in rendering a verdict on someone's life that may not be accurate. Aren't you glad that we don't have to determine the eternal fate of Ravi Zacharias? Okay? Until several months ago... Ravi was a hero in the evangelical world. After he died, the evangelical world hailed him and played all of his, I mean, he was a debater. He was a, uh, a speaker on the college campuses. And there'd be many times I go, man, how in the world? God just gave him the right words to say. You know what happened? Slowly, little by little, things started dribbling out after he died. And they finally, to their credit, his organization, they, uh, they assigned this to a group of ex-FBI agents. They said, we want to get to the bottom of this. What's true and what isn't? And they found out that Ravi was living a double life. And it was shocking. It was shocking to us. But you know what? It wasn't shocking to him. <laughs> That's very important to know. Jesus knew all along where Ravi's heart was really at. So we can be confident that whatever verdict the Lord has of his life, it's going to be an accurate one. Now let's move on to the third lesson Jesus has for us, the sheep. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger, and you invited me in. And I needed clothes, and you clothed me. And I was sick, and you looked after me. And I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Let me ask you this question. What is the criteria that Jesus uses in determining who is admitted to his kingdom. You know what, folks? It's very, very easy to miss this at first glance. And yet it's very clear once you start to dig a little deeper. Look at the very first words that the king says to the sheep. He says, come, come, my sheep, you who are blessed by my father, that's the first phrase. Take your inheritance, that's the second phrase. 
The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. That's the third phrase. Jesus uses three phrases here to stress our admittance to the kingdom of heaven is based on grace. It is not based on works. The first phrase is blessed by my father. The Greek word is eulogia, from which we get the word eulogy. And it just means to bestow favor upon. Heaven is a gift. It's a gift. And then Jesus says, take your inheritance. You know what an inheritance is, right? The dictionary says an inheritance is that which is received by transmission from parent to offspring. When your parents die, their worldly goods are passed on to you by virtue of the fact that you're their offspring. It's not based on how hard you worked. It's not based on how nice you were. It is based, it's not based on anything you did. It's based simply on the fact you are their kid. Heaven is a gift that was set in motion even before the foundations of the world were laid. That's the third reminder to us. This took place way before you did any good deeds, okay? Heaven is not earned. It's obtained by grace, by divine favor, which was set in motion at the creation of the world. Ephesians 2.9 says, it is not of works. Why? Lest any man should boast. <laughs> and we would boast, wouldn't we? You know, if we were led into heaven by our good deeds, it's, you know, I did this, I did this and this and this. And, and, and you, poor guy, you know, you, you didn't do as much as me. You know, that's the way we would be. Okay? We have a way, even when we're, we're uh, not necessarily uh, <laughs> uh, right up front in telling people how great we are, we have a way of letting them know that, don't we? <laughs> so why does Jesus list six good deeds among those who inherit the kingdom? Now, clearly, Jesus is making the point that if you are a true follower of Christ, your life is going to bear witness of that. 1 John 2, 5 says, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. Jesus poured out his life for us, didn't he? He did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what the Bible says. The good deeds that Jesus mentions here, Matthew 25, are the fruit of salvation. They are not the root of salvation. Very important to understand that. We are not saved because we serve others. We serve others because we're saved. Very important to understand that. If Jesus is truly in you, you will gladly serve the hungry, the thirsty, the strangers, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned. We live in a world that is really mixed up about this, about helping the less fortunate. I just finished reading Vadi Bakum's new book on the deceptiveness of the critical race theory. And uh, if you're going to read one... <laughs> One book about critical race theory, this would be the book. And it, it really helps that uh, Vadi himself is an African-American man. 
It's entitled, Fault Lines, The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe. You see, folks, here's what Body points out. There are times when helping helps, and there are times when helping hurts. We need to know the difference. You see, Vadi, he grew up poor, fatherless, surrounded by drugs and gangs and violence and dysfunction. He knows what real racism is. He has experienced it many times. He shares this in his book. He also knows what racism is not. And he is very thankful, and he recounts the many whites who invested in him and poured into him and mentored him and encouraged him. You see, sometimes we need to offer a hand up and not a hand out. Vadi shows how CRT is actually bringing more harm than good to the minority communities. You know, I grew up up north, the Indian Reservation. The government has poured money into the reservations. You know what? The last thing you need to give an alcoholic is a blank check. That's a lot. That is not a loving thing to do. All this casino money has just poured into the... Are they any better? No. The government has ravaged, by their policies, have ravaged the Indian reservation. It's so sad. So the Lord, we have to ask God for wisdom in this. When does helping help? When does helping hurt? We need to ask God for wisdom. Daily we need to pray, Lord, may the fruit of the Spirit flow in my life today. Those who are truly sheep, you know what? They're going to look like sheep. They're going to walk as Jesus walked. They're going to live as Jesus lived. They're going to serve as Jesus served. Now let's move to the fourth lesson Jesus has for us. And that's about the goats. Look at verse 41. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. In the Middle East, I was uh, my research on this, it, says, it said that the, this is the only area of the world where sheep and goats are often herded together. Okay? But they, they are in the Middle East. Both the Arabs and the Jews do that. Because, why are, why are they often... Uh, not herded together because they're very different. Sheep are docile, uh, gentle creatures. Goats are unruly. They're rambunctious. They can easily upset the sheep. Because they do not feed well together, they do not rest well together, the shepherd will often separate them when they graze and then again at night when they're bedding down. Now notice what the king says to the goats, verse 41. Depart from me, you who are cursed. 
The king orders them to depart from his presence because they are cursed. Now, why were they cursed? This is very important. They were cursed because they rejected him as their king and their savior. Now, it so happens that this same group also failed to live a life of service to the king. They didn't reject the king by failing to serve. They failed to serve because they rejected the king. Very important to understand that distinction. It's also important to recognize that their failure involved the sin of omission. They showed their true colors, not by what they did, but what they didn't do. 1 John 3.17 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. I love how journalist John Dickerson points out in his book, Jesus Skeptic. Great book. You can get it on audiobook too. The reason Christianity, John points out, has impacted the world so powerfully is more than the fact that it is a compelling system of beliefs. Now, don't get me wrong. It is a compelling system of beliefs. The truth claims of Christ are compelling. His death, burial, and the resurrection are the foundation of our faith. And yet, as the Christians spread from Jerusalem out into the world, what won the hearts of people on every continent was love. They will know they are Christians by their love, the love of God's people. Wherever the followers of Jesus went, they served with the hands and the feet of Christ himself. Dickerson shows this so beautifully. He shows how the whole scientific revolution, do you know who spearheaded that? It was evangelical Bible-believing Christians like Isaac Newton, who wrote a whole commentary on the book of Revelation. Okay? I mean, he was an outstanding, godly man, as was Lister, as was Pasteur, as was Pascal, and on and on you go. Most of these great scientists, the geologists, they were almost all of them, the early geologists, were, were um, people that believed the earth was only a few, years, a few thousand years old, which is very interesting to me. And uh, you go to Answers in Genesis, they got a whole book on this, how these early geologists, they believed that the Bible was true from cover to cover, and the Bible seemed to indicate that the earth was young and not old. And so they showed how the scientific evidence supported that until evolution came in and turned the whole thing topsy-turvy. Okay? Now the same thing, so the Christian spirit of the scientific revolution, same thing happened with education. Eight of the top ten universities in the world, Harvard, Cambridge, Oxford, Princeton, Yale, and three more, they were founded for the express purpose of Bible training. Isn't that amazing? Harvard was founded to train pastors. In the same way, Christians led the world in the formation of the modern system of hospitals. 
That's why you look at all these hospitals and you see names like St. Luke's and St. Mary's and um, from up north there, St. Gabriel's and in the Little Falls and you see the Methodist Hospital in the cities and where'd they get these names? It was evangelical Bible-believing Christians who started these hospitals and developed modern medicine. And we must never forget it was Bible-believing Christians who spearheaded the abolitionist movement to end slavery. People like Harriet Tubman. You want to see a great movie? Harriet Tubman's a great movie. Many, many others like her. Can I ask you today, how are you serving Jesus? You know, folks, it's not complicated. It really isn't. It's as easy as mowing your neighbor's lawn. I've got an 89-year-old neighbor living next to me. And uh, a couple times this summer, he was... He was, lives in the city, he's got a cabin, and, and uh, uh, mowed the lawn for him. He, did, he wasn't able to get up. Um, we got a couple little boys that live across the street from us, and, and uh, they came up to Sue the other day. They said, Miss Johnson, we, wanna, we, want, we need some clients, they said. And uh, we're gonna, we, we will pull your uh, garbage can in and out for a dollar a week. We said, hey, man, that is a deal. And so we signed up for that, you know, and uh, hey, building bridges, that's what God wants us to do. Build bridges with our neighbors. They, they can see the love of God in us. Praise God. Let me tell you something. I love watching my brother and sister, Pastor Jeff and Diane. They, they show us, they show us, and Jeff won't want me to brag on them, but I love to brag on them because I, I, I rub shoulders with Jeff every day. And they show us what this looks like to love this heartland area. You want to get involved in jail ministry, talk to Pastor Jeff there. He's got a group goes over to the Buffalo Jail every week. And you know what? You'll learn to, to share your faith. And you know what? You have a captive audience. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they can't say, nah, I don't want to hear that, you know. And <laughs> so, hey, go with Pastor Jeff. There's Roger Foby, a bunch of the guys. They go, Roger told me he goes a couple times a week over to the Buffalo Jail. We are living, we are trying to live this, Father. We, uh, folks, we're trying to live this. We don't do it perfectly, but we're trying to do this. See, you were, you were in prison and you didn't visit me. I was in prison. You didn't visit me. Heartbreaking. God wants us to be out there ministering to the hurting. But don't make it complicated. It's as easy as getting on your lawnmower and, and mowing the neighbor's lawn, shoveling their, their path here in the, in the uh, wintertime, bringing them a fresh loaf of bread, welcoming them, just like uh, this lady in the picture here. Don't make it complicated. Let's move to the fifth and final lesson Jesus has for us in this chapter, the conclusion. In verse 46, Jesus lays out the stakes, and he does it in a crystal clear fashion. He says, then the goats, they're going to go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous, the sheep, they're going to go away to eternal life. This is one of the most important verses in the Bible. It clarifies several things about heaven and hell. First, it tells us that heaven is forever. You know what the Greek word is? Aeonion. 
And, and I love that verse because aeonion means aeonion and on and on and on. <laughs> so you remember that verse, okay? But you know what? The same word is used for hell. Hell is also aeonion and on and on. Same word. You can't believe in an eternal heaven without believing in an eternal hell. And it's right from the words of Jesus himself, the lips of Jesus himself. So heaven's forever. This passage, together with the earlier verses, also tells us that heaven is being forever with God. Hell is being forever separated from God. You ever try to share with somebody? No, I don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear it. No, don't, don't want to hear. You get, you get off on that stuff, no, walking away. And, and it's like the Lord says, okay, I'm going to put you in a place where you don't have to hear it for millions and millions and millions of years. People make their own choice on that. Third, this teaches us that heaven is a place where we are protected forever from the devil and his demons and evil. Hell, however, is being eternally associated with the devil and his demons and evil. Fourth, heaven is being forever in a place of love and joy and peace and goodness and truth. Hell is being forever in a place of torment, isolation, suffering, affliction. These are my words. This is what this passage teaches this is from the words of the most loving man in history, Jesus Christ. There cannot possibly be in anywhere in the universe a greater contrast than an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. I close with this. You ever struggled with hateophobia? I had never heard of that word until just recently. But you know what? I've sure wrestled with it. Hateophobia is the fear of hell. And yet it's interesting that we are never instructed in the Bible to fear hell. Realize that? Nowhere in the Bible where it does it say fear hell. And it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible to fear Satan. You know what the Bible says? Luke 12, 5. This is what Jesus said. Fear him who has the power to throw you into hell. Okay? Now, several years ago, on two occasions, we hosted a production here at Heartland called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Overall, it was a great experience. We did this in the, uh, the new Annandale Auditorium. I believe it was 1999. And then we did it again in our new, uh, after the addition was added on here, about 2002, 2003, somewhere in there. And it was a great production. Many, many people. It was well attended. We had 1,800 attend both times. Okay? It was spread over four nights both times. Many came to Christ through this ministry. And yet it bothered me because we were talking about this earlier in the year. Should we bring this back? And I started to interview people. And I started to ask them, what is your lasting memories of the Heaven's Gates Nails Flames? And over and over again, and I especially talked to my kids because they remember that they were in the play themselves. 
And they said, you know, Dad, all four of them, they said, you know, Dad, the most lasting memory I have of this is a fear of hell and a fear of Satan. And you remember, Pastor Gary was Satan the first time. You remember that? <laughs> and um, it, that was their lasting memory. And that bothered me. That bothered me. And as I talked to more people, too, that had seen that production, that was also, it wasn't true with everyone. Uh, there were many, like me, that had very, very positive memories of that. Okay? But it bothered me that there were so many that came away, their takeaway was a fear of hell and a fear of Satan. Rather than an all-consuming respect for God, the sovereign ruler of the universe. Now, you know what is true? Here's what the Bible says. As you continue to grow in your love for God, that love, the love for God, begins to overwhelm all other fears. Pastor John Piper talks about this in an article he wrote entitled, Does Fear Belong in the Christian's Life? You see, the Bible says, 1 John 4, 16, it says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. You see, if our walk with Jesus was perfect, we wouldn't need to fear at all. We wouldn't even need to fear God. But you know what? Our love will never be perfect on this side of eternity. But in heaven, our love for God, where our love for God is perfect, we won't need to fear at all. You know, I had a fear of my mom when I was five years old. She locked me in the basement one time. I do have a sin nature, folks. And I had a fear of mom at five years old. I didn't have a fear of mom at 55. 55, we were best friends. And we had a deep and abiding love. So that I didn't fear her anymore. Okay? And I, I, you know, I think the second verse of Amazing Grace hits the nail on the head when it says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Grace taught my heart to fear. You know why? Because the Bible says the Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and righteousness and a judgment to come. Okay? So when the Holy Spirit is starting to work in an unbeliever, it convicts them of sin and righteousness and a judgment to come. There is a judgment to come. Yeah. Okay? But you know what? After you've walked with the Spirit for a while, you know what the Spirit does? Fills you with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. And the fear evaporates. Okay? And we know the depths 
of God's love for us. So the t- amazing grace, twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and it was through grace that my fears were relieved the more and more I got to know God. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. When you fully realize what Jesus did for you on the cross, <laughs> the suffering he went through, what he did for you, it will fill you with an all-consuming love of God that will drive out all fear, including the fear of hell and the fear of Satan. Friend, hear me today when I tell you that God loves you. He loves you. Ephesians 3.17, I pray that you may grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and that love, it casts out fear. Are you living in that love today? Are you living in that love? 